So, I was driving in the car, and my five-year-old daughter and my seven-year-old son were in the back seats. And they, they, they began to fight. Who has kids who fight in the car, and it drives them nuts? And so they began to fight, and it was like an intense fight. And the thing that they began to fight about, it was they were fighting about God and who God was, right? And so I'm driving the car. We got places to be, places to go, all that stuff. And my kids begin to fight. And this is how the fight begins. So my five-year-old daughter turns to my son, who's seven, and and she says, Zion, what if you were on a swing set and you started to swing so high that you got afraid and you jumped off? But before you jumped off, God put a rope down and invited you to get on. Would you get on it and have ice cream with God? Or would you just fall down? And my son responds to that by saying, Yara, Yara, God does not have ice cream. (laughs) And to that, Kara got this big smile, and, and she said, of course God has ice cream. He can do whatever he wants. And then my son, who's just, he's so black and white, he clenches his hands. And he's like, God does not have ice cream. He doesn't eat. And then my daughter then says, yes, he does. He can do whatever he wants. He's God. And then my son goes, he doesn't even have a body. He can't eat. There's no ice cream. And he starts crying. And then my daughter starts crying. And the person in front of me is going so slow. And I get mad. And I say, there's no ice cream. It's no, you know, just stop. Be quiet. And my daughter's face, it was kind of as if I had just committed heresy. How dare you say that God does not have ice cream? That story plagued me for days. It plagued me for days because in that, it's like, of course God can have ice cream. Of course. Why not? But why would I respond like that? What happened in my heart? And, and I started to journal about it. I'm like, I'm just so busy, and I'm caught up, and, and things. And I'm like, oh, I forgot the joy of God. And I, I forgot the unpredictability of God. And, you know, I forgot, you know, about these crazy questions about swing sets and God and what would happen if, because I don't have time for that. And, and, and I just started thinking, and, and it's like, man, when is the... The last time that I've, like, created space to to hear from him directly, you know, know, what is he doing? And possibly is he planning to have ice cream someday with me? I don't know. And, you know, like, and even if he is, I wouldn't have time to figure it out. And he probably already passed and the ice cream's already gone because I am so caught up with, with the things that I do. And it seems like the God who, who, who I have been following and the God who, who accompanies me is a God who picks up the pieces. He's the God who picks up the pieces after I break things. Or he's the one who heals things after they've been sick. Or he's the God who fixed the broken relationships that I have whenever I just mess it up. And I always do. But he seems to be he hasn't been the God who has paved paths for me. 
so much of us have a God who picks up the pieces, but we've forgotten the God who paves paths. And the God who pays paths is very prevalent in the Old Testament. And the God who pays paths is very prevalent in the New Testament. And the God who pays paths is very prevalent in your life. But we often are too busy to know it. And so, so to me on the question, the question of what is it to be strong and courageous? What is it, you know, to have strength? strength in in today's culture? What is it to have courage and to not have fear? A big part of that, a big part of that plays out in the idea of God is a God who not only picks up the pieces, but he also paves the path. What kind of courage and what kind of strength would each of us have if we knew the places that we were heading, the places that we are going, God has already been there, done that. For me, there is courage in that. There is strength in that. There is beauty in that. And for God, there is preparation in that. You see, God is all about preparing places for us. And it is a beautiful thing. We are in a sermon series called Being Strong and Courageous. And it's coming from the book of Joshua. So we have been studying the book of Joshua to learn about what it is to be strong and courageous. And so we have been following his story plus the tribes to see the things that they encounter and the things that God is is doing and the challenges that come up. And it's been a really, really beautiful thing. And today... Today is a special day. Today is a day that we find ourselves at the Battle of Jericho, which is everyone's favorite story ever. And so I'm excited to talk about it, to journey together and go through it. And this is a very, very special passage. But before we go through the passage, I just want to point out one thing before we go here. The passage that we're going to go through is um, chapter 6 of Joshua. But in chapter 5, it paints a a picture and it paints a setting of chapter 6. Something I want to point out and bring over from chapter 5 is this is the festival of Pentecost. Okay, like the time, or not Pentecost, that's a silly, Passover. Um, Passover is is happening here. So so we're going into chapter 6 and it's time of Passover. And if, if you remember, you know, where Passover came from, it's, you know, whenever um, the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt, right? And they are brought out because God sends the angel of death to Egypt, and they painted the doorposts with blood, and if there was blood on the doorpost, then people were spared. This is the celebration of Passover is happening during chapter 6. This is important, and this is beautiful. So here's the passage. It's going to pop up, and we are going to do this together. Here we go. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear the sound 
of long blasts of trumpets. Have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse, and the army will go up, and everyone straight in. This is beautiful. Right in the beginning, right in the beginning, it says, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Right in the beginning, God takes Joshua to these big walls of Jericho. And he says, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Been there, done that. Right off the bat, God says, I delivered. And here's the point of everything ever. It's God delivers. Can everyone say, God delivers? Here we go. God delivers. One more time. God delivers. This is the point. See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and fighting men. See, the city of Jericho, it just isn't the typical city at all. This is a military Canaanite outpost. It is the the hub of all things. It is the king and the temple and the, the everything. The whole military is in this sucker. The whole city itself is built as a temple to the god Baal. God Baal is the god of the moon. And so, so how this city is built, it, it, it's built to focus on the different phases of the moon. Furthermore, it's built with these big, big, big walls. So big that no one would ever think about attacking. You just don't do it. And so it's this combination of like holy place and army place. It is impenetrable. I just said that without stuttering. Impenetrable. I, I, I didn't even practice it. And so, um, it, it, so it's just like this. It's awesome. And the, but then you have these, these Israelite people who are coming in, and they're staring at this impenetrable force, and God says, see, I've delivered it to you. Really? God delivers. So here we are at this battlefield, right? And so whenever we talk about a battle, I think it's important to not just skip to the end, but to focus on the people who are fighting the battle. It's important. In these times, whenever you talk about a people, to understand who the people are, you need to focus on who their God is. And so if you understand their God, you understand the people. So let's talk about the people of Jericho and the God of Jericho. So whenever we talk about Jericho, it's important to know, uh, first of all, that they worship the God of the moon, who is Baal, Baal. And so, so Baal actually means, if you actually pull it about and turn it into English, it means husband. Yeah, it is the God husband. And uh, he is the God of the moon. And because he is the God of the moon, people say that the Canaanites believe that he provides vision during darkness. He paves paths. He, he illuminates things. Furthermore, the God Baal is a provider because the idea of husband, he is the great provider. Furthermore, he is this God who is seen as a great general. He is powerful and strong. He's often painted as being bloodthirsty, who will do whatever it takes to stay alive. The god Baal is also iconicized as a golden calf. 
The god Baal is iconicized as a golden calf. Whenever people would paint a picture of Baal or, or create an image of Baal, it is that of a golden calf. The Hebrew people are fully aware of who the golden calf is. So if you remember 40 years ago or 50 years ago, I'm not sure, they actually thought it was the golden calf that brought them out of slavery. Do you remember this? This wasn't just this hypothetical idea. I'm just going to pull it out of the air. We're going to pull a golden calf. No, it's like they actually thought that the god Baal pulled them out of slavery. They built a golden calf and they said, this is the god who pulled us out of slavery. And then God has spent 40 years after that proving them wrong, right? It's been his business for 40 years to say, no, he didn't. I did. So over here we have the God Baal. Over here we have the God who? Okay, so this is how it all begins, right? The God, who is he? What's his name? What does he do? Is in Hebrew culture, whatever your name is, is actually a thing you do and what you are. So, so you have like the God of thunder, the God of war, the God of fertility, the God of, you know, God's do things. And so the first encounter that the Israelite people have with this God is during the burning bush, it's a burning bush where the prophet Moses, he's out hiking and he comes across this burning bush. And this burning bush is holy. This burning bush is God. And this burning bush invites him to take off his shoes. And Moses and the burning shrub have this conversation. And the burning bush says, I am God. And the burning bush says, I have purpose for you. And the burning bush says, we're going to call you know, our people out of slavery. And the burning bush has great plans, this burning bush. And then Moses asks the thing that anyone would do is, what is your name? Who are you? Because whenever you ask, what is your name, the thing you're asking is, what are you the God of? And so in this question, what is your name? He's asking, what do you do? And so at this time, God responds, and the common answer is, I am the God I am. That is the answer. I am the God I am. The, the, the Jewish Rabbis will go beyond this, and he, he says, that's true, but he's, he is the God I am, but I will be what I will be. Or they even take it a step further and say, he is the God I am, I will be what I will be. Furthermore, I will do what I will do. You see, the, the name of God of the bush who calls Moses, whenever Moses asks, what is your name, or what is it that you do? do, what is it that defines you, God's response is, I will do whatever I want to do, and that is my name. So on this side, over here, we have the God, I will be what I will be, and I will do what I will do, and that is that I am. And then on this side, we have the God of the golden calf. And these are the gods who are at war in the story of Jericho. And this is a beautiful thing. Over here, 
We got these people of Jericho who would die for their God, who call themselves people of God, and they sacrifice their children for this God. They will do whatever it takes. But this God has been silent for hundreds and thousands of years. On this side, we have a God who is active in the desert. In fact, his people, they live in the desert for 40 years. How terrifying is that? Like this God sustained people in places that people should die, in places that people should die in. But this God kept them alive. This God over here has been quiet, but people believe in this God. And so they protect him at all costs. They protect this God and build big walls and big temples. And they cry out to this God for, for healing and provision. These people are fearful. So they build walls and they protect those walls that protect their God. This God and these people are in the desert, no walls at all, just tents. And in the desert, if God doesn't show up, if God isn't actually there, they don't eat, they don't drink, they don't have any direction, and they are lost. But these people are anything but lost. These people are well-fed. They, are, they have water whenever they want it. They have direction. They have law. They have hope. They have dream. And they have a promise, and it's right over there. These people, these people over here, they have a fortress. They have a temple dedicated to a God who is in the shape of a golden cow. Cows are the first thing that people have ever learned to domesticate. It is very easy to build a God in our image and domesticate God. In fact, scholars say that Baal is the God, that whenever people create God in their image, they create Baal. Whenever God, whenever people create God in their image instead of God creating them in his the first thing that we do is create Baal, a domesticated God. And cows can put on collars and can be toted around. And they can follow you wherever you go. And the people of Jericho have been, have been carrying their God with, with them wherever they go. The, the God of the Israelites, on the other hand, has been carrying his people. For 40 years, and they follow him wherever he goes. You see, there are two seriously different people groups here. You have this people group here who has created their God in their, in, in their image, who has a God who follows them, a God who supports them, a God that they fight for, a God that they protect, a God that they will stand up for, a God that they will shed blood for. But over here, these people has a God who fights for them. They have a God who pays paths for them. They have a God who sacrifices for them. They have a God who sustains them. And this is a huge shift. 
You see, they were going into the desert fully thinking they were going to have to protect their God, that they would have to carry their God, only to find out through 40 years that their God carries them. And so this battle of Jericho is a big thing because they are coming back up against the golden calf, the place that they had begun 40 years ago. It's really cool. The thing that's important, the thing that is important whenever we talk about the story of Joshua and the courage of Joshua and the hope of Joshua is whenever we associate with the story of Joshua, we have to make sure which side of the Jordan we're actually on. I want to say that again. Before we associate with the people of Joshua and the courage of Joshua, we first have to make sure, absolutely positively sure, which side of the Jordan we are actually on. Because this God here, he does whatever he wants to do. His voice is alive. He says things. He does things. He has plans and dreams. This God over here doesn't say a word and has to be protected. So it all happens just as God said. Like God said to his people, he said, see this? I've delivered it. I've delivered it to you. And that's exactly what happened. The people of God, they go out and day after day after day after day for six days, they go around the city of Jericho over and over and over and they're quiet. If I was in Jericho, I'd be terrified. I don't know why I would be terrified because this is just you know, kind of odd, but there's something in the oddity of them going around our city that would be enough to make me be terrified. And so they're going around our city, this place that is the hub of Cana, this place that is protection, this place that is temple, this place that is impenetrable, and everyone knows it. Everyone knows it except for a God who said, I already delivered it to you. Been there, done that. And so here is verse 20. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, can you imagine that? Like, you know, finally, day number seven is here, and these, these huge trumpets just erupt. And it's like, finally, I get a yell, you know? And so, so day number seven, finally, we get a yell. And, and the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpets, when the men gave a loud shout, the walls collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. Do you understand what happened here? Because as a kid, I've heard this story five billion times. So every time I go in this passage, it's like, no big deal. The walls fell down. Impenetrable force. God breathes. Walls fall down. It's a big deal. Impenetrable temple fighting against the God that they began with and God's proving to them over and over and over and over that he is not made in our image, but, but we are made in his. And proving that he has paved paths and fights our battles for us. God breathes and the impenetrable force falls over, collapses, shut up. 
you know? It's ridiculous. And so the walls fall in, and the armies rush in, and then this happens. So everyone charges straight in, and they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men, women, young, old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Everything in it dies. And at this point, I go, what? Really? God, why? And what is up with that? Like, like, wasn't this enough? Like, why this? Why the destruction? Why the killing? Why? And if you're asking that question, you're probably asking the same question as someone who's called Rahab. Rahab is one of my favorite people in the Bible. See, she pops up earlier before the, the walls of Jericho collapse. In fact, she is a person inside of Jericho itself. And whenever Joshua sent spies into the city of Jericho, um, she hid them in her house. Here's the thing about Rahab. She happened to be a prostitute. So if... If you don't know what a prostitute is, I'm not going to tell you. Um, go ask your parents. And so, and so she was a prostitute inside the city of Jericho. The city of Jericho is a military hub, a spiritual hub. Furthermore, it is said it is one of the most evil places. Um, there are scholars who say that Jericho was compared to Sodom and Gomorrah as far as their, um, th- how evil they had been, but on the spectrum of spiritual practice. That the thing that they often did was human sacrifice, and that human sacrifices were very, very common. F- furthermore, there are poems about how the blood of the people of Jericho fills the, the Cities and it's a pleasing aroma to the God Baal. It is this evil place. And in this evil, horrible place, there's a prostitute, Rahab, who saw these spies, took them in, protected them. And a part of the deal of her protection is if, if God you know, took this city and if the Israelites took this city, she would be spared. She would be spared. She asked to be spared because she believed that Jericho was coming to an end. And so so the spies told her, yes, so all you have to do is put this crimson cord outside of your, your window. Right, Put this crimson cord outside of your window. And so when the the soldiers come in, when the soldiers come in, they'll see that crimson cord and they will spare you. They will spare you and your family and, and, and your father and your mother and your kids. Whatever you got, you will all be spared if you throw this crimson cord out the window. It's Passover. You know what I'm saying? Right? Can we draw that a little bit? Blood on the doorpost, crimson cord out the window. This is a time of Passover, and there is death coming to Jericho. Everyone is going to die. And so if I am Rahab in this city, then the Israelites are marching around, marching around. It's like, ugh. Things are coming to an end. She grew up there. She was born there. All of her friends are there. She went to school there. And so all of a sudden, the walls come in, soldiers come in, and there is a mass slaughter. And the 
question that her in her head is like, why is this going on? My world is falling apart. What is happening? I don't have any control. Man, I hope God shows up. Man, I hope this promise I made, it was actually real. You know, man, I hope God honors his end of the bargain. Man, this is not what I thought. What is happening? You see, in this story, I often feel like I'm on the other side of the Jordan. In this story, I often feel like that there are so many times that things are not happening as I thought they should happen. And I say, man, I really hope that God shows up and all I got is this crimson corner I'm going to throw out the window. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, man, I hope he sees this. Man, you know, oh God, please see my heart. And, and so here's what happens. You know, the people see this crimson cord and they save her family and they pull her out and put her on the other side of the Jordan. Whenever I think about the hardships and the things that I do not understand and, and when the world seems to be falling apart because I'm so busy, I think of the crimson cord. It's like this call for help. It's this plea for help. I can't do anything here, and I could be slaughtered. But man, I hope God's here, and I hope his people see this thing. The crimson cord is a beautiful, beautiful, poetic thing. It is this beautiful, 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 poetic thing for those of us who often feel like we are on the wrong side of the Jordan. Because more often than not, I feel like I am on the wrong side of the Jordan. Like, I, I see the people over there, and it seems like God really talks to them. And I see the people over there, and it seems like they actually have a plan. A plan that I've not heard yet. You know? And I've seen the things that other people do with God. And it's like, man, what about me? Oftentimes I feel like I'm on the other side of the Jordan just praying, man, and are you here for me also? Do I count? Do I have what it takes? And the good thing for, for people like us who often feel like we are on the other side of the Jordan is, is whenever we as people draw a line in the sand or a, a line in the dirt of where God's heart begins and his grace ends, we often find Jesus on the other side fighting for the people that no one else fights for. He's often on the other side of the Jordan. Because the crimson cord, the idea of the crimson cord, and the truth of the crimson cord is, is scholars have used this vocabulary of the crimson cord to talk about the, the, the lineage and the bloodline of Jesus himself. You see, Rahab, she was brought onto the other side of the Jordan. And the spies who came out to save her, she married one of them. That's pretty awesome. And, and then she became the great, 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 great grandma of Jesus. That's just cool. You see... <laughs> The story of Rahab and the story of the crimson cord paints this idea that there's the wilderness on both sides of the Jordan. That on both sides of the Jordan, there are places where if God does not show up, we are going to die. 
If God doesn't bring us water and food, we're going to die. If God does not see our crimson cord, we are going to die. Do you see this blood on the doorpost? Oh, God, please do. You know? It's this idea that wilderness is the place that the relationship with God is built. You know, if you think about the Israelite people, it all takes place in the wilderness. It's if God does not show up out here, if God does not show up, we have no hope. But God always shows up. His relationship with his people was built in the wilderness, times where no one else could survive. The wilderness is the place that the people of God thrive. And this is important to us. It's important to us when we think about Jesus and the crimson cord and him doing whatever he wants to do. You see, a bunch of us believe or have been taught that Jesus had to come down and save us. And Jesus had to do all these things. You see, Jesus himself is defined by the fact that he does not have to do anything. In fact, he is a God who does whatever he wants to do. God does whatever he wants to do, which proves the fact that Jesus wanted you. That Jesus chose to come down and to be with you. That Jesus chose to come down and save you. That he chose to save you. That's what he wanted to do. He didn't have to do it. There isn't a, a law that said, well, here's the thing that God had to do. He's like, no, I want to do it. I do what I want. And these are my people, and I will fight their battles for them. God delivers. God delivers. And a bunch of our hearts and a bunch of our lives are surrounded by these big, impenetrable walls. And these walls protect us, and they protect our hearts, and they protect our souls because we are afraid, because we haven't heard God in years. But the breath of God knocks them down. A bunch of us have our hearts and walls, impenetrable walls built around them. And God says, look, I've already delivered your heart. And a bunch of us are sitting here today saying, no, you haven't. But yes, he has. Look, I have already delivered it to you. Because he chose to. He chose to come and fight your battle for you. Because the truth is, is that the sin battle is something that you can't win. It's something you will never win. You're not good enough. It will eat your lunch every day. God fights our battles for us. Do you have a God who fights your battles for you or do you fight God's battles for him? In that question, you need to ask, which side of the Jordan am I on? Because God fights our battles for us. God protects us. God pays paths for us. Yes, he picks up the broken pieces, but he also blazes the trails. And in the story of our heart, and in the story of the walls of Jericho, he is blazing trails so he can come in. This is a beautiful thing, because in this, he invites us to the wilderness. 
He invites us out into a relationship with him where in that relationship, he takes us to places, not places that you are comfortable, but places that if he does not show up, you cannot survive. This is what he does. He goes into places that people cannot survive and he offers hope. He goes into places that people cannot survive and he offers real food. He goes into places that you cannot survive and he breathes life into you. He goes into places that you cannot survive. This is what the church does. It goes into places that people cannot survive and it brings hope and heaven and good things. And do you see what I'm saying? And this is why we as a church are so important to go into places that people cannot survive without Jesus. And I really believe this. The church goes into places that people cannot survive without God. This is why we as a church do do these things like hope renewed or project beyond or, or gospel and and all the things that we do to go into places where people cannot survive and make them live by the name of Jesus that his kingdom may be established. These are not just crazy projects that our church comes up with at all. Like this, this is our DNA. This is what we do. And it isn't just the thing that, that we do. This is what God does and has always done and will continue to do. And we also will always continue to do that because it's just not our DNA. This is our blood. This is the blood that pumps through the church. This is actually the crimson cord that someone threw out. Do you see this crimson cord? Or are we so busy? Are we so busy and caught up with the things that have to be done, the things we're doing, and the person who's driving in front of us is so slow? Are you so busy and caught up with your own dreams, your own aspirations, that we are passing crimson cords all over the place that people are tossing out, but we don't see them because we're so busy? And people are dying, and people are thirsty, and people are asking, is God out there? What would it look like if you had time to go into the wilderness and see the face of God? What would it be like if you went into the wilderness, into a place that he sustained you instead of you sustained yourself? maybe your eyes would be open to the crimson cords that are all around us, that people are tossing out like, God, where are you? Because it seems like everything is falling apart. I believe that whenever we as people spend time in the wilderness, whenever we ask God to sustain us, I believe God shows up. I don't believe that God just shows up, but I think that we begin to see him. We begin to see God because he has always been there, but we ourselves are actually present. And this is an interesting thing. Because in the wilderness, I think we have courage to begin to ask people because we have a better idea of who God is and how unpredictably beautiful he is that we would ask our friends and we would ask our family. So 
if we were on a swing set and you swung up so high and got afraid and you jumped off and God threw out a rope, would you grab it and eat ice cream with God? Please pray with me. Oh God, you are a God who does what he wants. You are a God who chose. You chose us. You chose to fight for us. You fight our battles. You deliver. You are a God who shows up before we show up. You are a God who offers your heart before we offer ours. You pave paths. You are ahead of us. You've been there. And you invite us to come along. You are a God of the crimson cord. You are a God of the blood on the doorpost. You are a God with grace that abounds for people on both sides of the Jordan. God, you are a God who prepares tables for us, places to come and eat whenever our swings fly too high. God, we want to meet with you here. We want to see your face and see what the color of your eyes look like. God, we thank you for the table that you invite us to, the table of, ble- of bread, the table of wine. That is a table for those of us who have been here often and for those of us who have not been here in a really long time. For those of us who have tried to come close to you and succeeded and for those of us who have tried to come close to you and fell flat on our face. God, we thank you for your table that is the sacrifice that you have given us of yourself because you chose to fight our battles for us, the battle of our heart. God, meet with us here. Help us to be present.